So today was a full day, wasn't it? A lot. A lot of adjustment, a lot of settling into this place and this routine. And then this afternoon, meeting some of the people that are here, hearing from everyone. I can imagine that you're all a little, perhaps, exhausted by now. So hopefully just sit comfortably, let the words wash over you. It's not a great deal you need to do, but just find ease and comfort in the body and the mind. This is a really special time at Spirit Rock, as I was saying last night in my um, welcoming of you, just the fact that we all come together in this way. I really feel like it's a kind of gathering of the tribe or the clan or the family here. We've come from, as you heard this afternoon, all over the world to be here from all over this country, all over the of North America, all over the world. All of you in all these different configurations uh, with this interest, this yearning to be here on this pilgrimage to Spirit Rock and then arriving here. And human beings have done this for millennia, you know, g- gathered from far-flung areas and come together for different reasons, to talk together, to trade, to uh, make agreements, to celebrate weddings and funerals, all those kind of events. Unfortunately, our modern equivalent is conferences, which is rather a deadening way to spend time, personally, I find. Hopefully, this will be more alive, enlivening than that. But it's a very uh, traditional thing to do, to come together. Um, and, but this is the tribe of people who are interested in awakening. That's what draws us all together here. And as disparate as we may be from all these different places, that's the central thread or yearning that we all share or we wouldn't be here. And not everyone who wanted to be here could be here. There's still people on the wait list, people who for whatever reason in their life wanted to come but circumstances didn't allow Many people who've been here in years past and just didn't make it this year, but they're thinking of us. So there's that whole support of a community out there that uh, is also part of what we're doing here. But everyone who's here is here because they belong to this tribe, this community. And every one of you is, is a welcome and important part of the sangha, the community we're creating here. So this urge that's drawn us all from these different areas to come to what we hope is your spiritual home, certainly is for this month or two months. And uh, I live here in the valley, and in the valley, um, salmon are a really big deal. We've got one of the spawning creeks for salmon uh, on the west coast right here in the valley, and so we have non-profits that... that, um, uh, active or are very active in protecting them. We have people that educate about them and count them and do all kinds of things. Spirit Rock has had to do a huge amount, wanted to do a huge amount in its uh, design and build of this phase to protect the salmon habitat. So it's a really big thing. So I know quite a bit about salmon, not out of any particular interest, but just because, as I said, they're in the local paper. Every week there's something about salmon and how many there are or what they're doing at this time because they're, they're meant to be spawning. Unfortunately, there aren't that many this year. But it's an amazing story, the life of a salmon. I mean, they're born in one of these little tributaries out of an egg, and as hatchlings, yearlings, whatever they're called, they spend time in fresh water, and when they're strong enough, they make their way to the ocean. And in that, they change from freshwater to saltwater fish. Most fish, if you take them from one to the other, they would die. But these salmon make this amazing transformation. Again, I'm not an authority in any degree in this, but I read that you know some of them even change sex if that's necessary. They're really, you know, as a as a species, they're very, uh, I don't know, alive in what they do to survive. So they make their way out into the Pacific from this tiny little creek up here at the top of San Geronimo Valley, and then they're out there in the wilds of the ocean. Of course, many of them don't survive, but those that do, when the time is right, they find their way back to this same creek. And they used to think it was kind of a myth, folk, folklore, that that was the way it happens, but now they can tag them, and they know that that's actually true. For about 90% of them, they find their way back to this creek. There's some urge that draws them 
to this place, to this home, to their home. And again, if you've seen images of salmon in their journey, they go against the stream, upstream, over waterfalls and rocks, and of course, images of the ones in Alaska, it doesn't happen here, uh, bears catching them, everything, all the obstacles they have to fight to, to find their way home. But the urge is so strong, they do that. Hopefully your journey here and your time here won't be quite as challenging as it is for the salmon, but something similar is happening. Something drew you to come here, and this is your home now for the next month or two months. Something drew you, and there will be challenges, and you will be transformed. There is no question. I have no doubt about that. We don't know how or why, but it will happen. I'm not... kind of know why. We don't know how. And so what we're searching for is some inner refuge, some inner sense of home. And this practice, what we do here at Spirit Rock, is a powerful way to connect back in with that. And we're all listening to that, drawn by that. But as well as this inner home, which is the essential one, the most important one, There's also the physical fact that this is now your home. A month or two months is a long chunk of time. And I don't know if you know it, but you've changed your address. Your address is now 5000 Sir Francis Drake Boulevard in Woodacre. We've stopped your mail. We've turned off your cell phone service. And you've moved here. This is now your home. And with any move, there's adjustments. You've got this tiny little room. Maybe you're sharing it with someone. You've got just what you brought with you, and you had to make all of that, all of those decisions. You know, what do I take? Is it going to be warm? Is it going to be cold? How much is it going to rain? Do I need these boots? What about, you know, it's endless, right? Just to put a bag together to come on retreat for a few weeks. My husband and I actually did just move our home, and we've lived in Woodacre for 23 years, and we moved five minutes away. But it still meant that every single thing in our house that we'd accumulated over 23 years had to be picked up, luckily not all by us, we had movers, but picked up, moved, and then decided, you know, do you keep it, where do you put it, do you throw it away, do you, do you recycle it? Even if you recycle it, you have to clean it or fix it up or take it, it's just endless. The really felt the tyranny of stuff, of all of these things we've uh, accumulated. Here you've got the simplicity of just what you brought with you. And there's a real renunciation in that, but also a great sense of freedom, that you have everything you need and you will be taken care of and provided for in your weeks of practice here. And if you don't have it, you know, and you really need it, We'll probably get it for you. Quilly's very good at that. Don't, she probably doesn't want me to say that, but within reason, within reason. You know, we want, we want you to be comfortable here. So you do have to make this your home. There's a real letting go of all of the concerns and obligations, the relationships of your home base out there in the world. This is now your home. This is now your family your tribe, your community, your sangha. And so we do step out of our lives when we come on retreat. We let a lot of things go. And it's really helpful to do that as much as possible. But of course, we also bring a lot with us. We can't compartmentalize, you know, we walk in the door and everything gets forgotten back there. Of course not. We bring our loves and our losses and our friendships and our relationships and our worries and our fears, we bring that with us. And part of the process of our practice here is honoring that. We work with what we need to work with. We let go what we can let go of. This, is, it, it, this practice includes everything. And learning how to be skillful with that is really a a big learning that we do here on retreat. So this theme uh, I'm talking tonight is sort of our practice as a journey and finding our home, our true home. And I love the Buddha's imagery. Um, he, He had used beautiful similes, metaphors in his teaching. And there are three that are 
related sort of why I thought of salmon and their journey. Three that he used that had, were water-based. He would often talk about going against the stream, which means that we as practitioners consciously take up different values than the general materialistic world. We're not, we're not living by those values of materialism, of acquisition and competitiveness, of greed and aversion. We're really going against that, those tendencies um, that, that can be so strongly conditioned is in us as individuals, but certainly out there in the world. So going against that, the very strong image in the Buddha's teachings. But then he also talks about entering the stream. And that's when our faith, our commitment, our understanding is so strong and so clear. We are carried along by this stream, this force of Dhamma. And there's no turning back. There's just one direction from then on. So we then we enter the stream of practice of Dhamma. And then lastly, he talked about crossing the stream or the flood and this sense, you know, the image often of a raft and the raft will take you across, but then you let it go because you're on the other shore, the other side. That is happiness, the deepest freedom, the unconditioned. You will go through all of these time and time again. You'll feel like sometimes you're flailing against a current, sometimes you're swimming with it and things are easy and it all seems clear. And there'll be times when you'll just completely go to the other shore, even if it's just for a moment where there'll be clarity and peace and wisdom. Well, these are the waters we'll be swimming in in these weeks together. And we undertake this journey, yes, as individuals. There's a way in which this practice is a very individual practice. If we close our eyes, sit in meditation, take our walks alone, we're in silence for the majority of the day, But we're not separate, really, from each other and certainly not from the world. And this, also this theme of the individual and the collective is important for us to keep in our hearts and our minds. Because even as we turn away from the world in one way, in the sense of the renunciation, the silence, the simplicity that we enter into on retreat, as I said, we bring the world with us and we impact the world. It's amazing the impact just your practice here will have, as I've said, of the people who are thinking of us and inspired by your commitment and your practice, the people who um, often do this retreat or would like to do it, everyone who's thinking about us practicing here. Our talks will go up on Dharma Seed and many people will listen to them and share in that. The community of staff here are impacted. But it's more than that, too. You know, there's something about what, what we're doing, what it represents, that ripples out. Margaret Mead said, Never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. In fact, it is the only thing that ever has. And we can at times kind of maybe even feel selfish that we're doing this or separate from the world, this very individual practice, but I really don't think so. You know, I don't know if we'll change the entire world. I highly doubt it. But we'll change our world. And as we change our world, that ripples out. You know, whether it's here and people thinking of you practicing, you're inspiring them by your practice and commitment. But certainly when we go home at the end of the retreat, there is this real possibility that we're not practicing in isolation as much as we might be individual and in silence. So we can sometimes come on retreat with a big agenda. You know, you don't make this kind of commitment lightly, right? And you kind of want to get something out of it. It is a big commitment of time and money and energy and all the resources that you have. So we can sometimes come wanting to solve life's questions or, you know, even a personal question. You know, what should I do with my life? What about this job or this relationship? Or what should I be looking for or cultivating? You know, perhaps you want to get enlightened. I think that's fabulous. But, you know, this sort of sense of urgency or this, this um, goal that's out there. And it's helpful to have a strong motivation and a clarity of intention. 
But actually what we're doing here is pretty simple most of the time. We were a few of us talking about this kind of question the other day. Someone had been on retreat and was wondering what, was, what happened in that retreat? What was the point of it? And Carol just said, the point of meditation, of retreat, is just to strengthen the habit of mindfulness. And I thought, yeah, that's right. You know, that's what we're doing. And that is really a powerful thing to do. It might seem, I don't know, you can almost say mundane or not very jazzy or exciting or sexy, but it, it's so amazing. Because mindfulness is a powerful tool. A powerful tool to awaken us, to free us. How do we know it's a powerful tool? Parade Magazine tells us so. (laughs) So I I get Parade Magazine in my Sunday paper. This is from January of this year, 2015. The number one health booster in 2015. Politicians, children, and celebrities are doing it. Shouldn't you? (laughs) And if you look on the front, there's this tall basketball guy. What's his name? Phil Jackson? And uh, I think, what? Well, but he's, I think, the coach or something. Uh, The Huffington Post lady, uh, Hugh Jackman, Ellen, this is how celebrities I know, Ellen, oh, it's just Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, (laughs) Oprah, Paul McCartney, Lena Dunham, Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper did a retreat just recently. There was a whole 60-minute session on it. He did it with uh, John and Will Kabat-Zinn. Will Kabat-Zinn's one of our teachers here at Spirit Rock. He said at the end of the retreat, even though it was just like a weekend and he was missing for half of it, it changed his life. (laughs) It's true, he went off, there was some big story and he had to go off and cover it. He said, you could say I drunk the Kool-Aid, but I have. This stuff is really powerful. So the number one health booster in 2015, we're right up there with kale and quinoa. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. The Beatles, Maharishi, Lena Dunham. So that's how we know it works. Parade tells us. Oh, another one. Dan Harris. Dan Harris is the weekend anchor, I think, on ABC you know, he's one of these good-looking guys. He had a panic attack on live television a number of years ago, so he's kind of searching for something to really help him, and he came on retreat here. He's been on retreat here and with Joseph. So he's done a couple of retreats, so now he's an expert. He's written a book, um, <laughs> and the book is called 10% Happier. He said, I didn't want to go for the high bar. It's like just 10%, New York Times bestseller, whatever. It's, I'm told it's a really good book, and he's a really good guy, but what's in, why I bring him up is... Just this morning, um, you know, we're here in Spirit Rock, we have 400 acres, we have a farm next door. The cows that graze uh, in the Spirit Rock field are owned by this farming family next door. They've had it for generations. And I'm uh, friends with them and in dialogue with them and a number of things, you know, that we have to do to take care of the land together. And uh, the farmer from next door showed up at our door this morning. I wasn't home, but Guy spoke to him. And they, he was asking about some land and the cows and grazing and things. And the guy said, you need to talk to Sally. You'll have to get, you know, wait till she's home. But he, as he was leaving, he said, you know, I'm reading this book. It's by Dan, Dan Harris, 10% Happier. He said, and Spirit Rock is mentioned in that book. <laughs> He's like, Spirit Rock is really quite famous, isn't it? Yes. So I keep wondering, you know, are we mainstream yet? And my friends that are out there in the more in the mainstream, no, you are not mainstream. But I think now Parade Magazine and The Farmer Next Door, if he's reading about meditation, we're kind of getting there, right? You know, it's, it's happening. It's amazing. I would never have thought that sort of this applied mindfulness, we call it secular mindfulness, that's the doorway for a lot of people. And it's great because if it brings them... To any level of mindfulness, that's helpful. If it brings them to the Dhamma, that's really powerful. And that's, I think, what's happening. So, mindfulness. We're doing the right thing. Shouldn't you? Yes, you should. (laughs) We are. So, what are we doing here? Mindfulness. It's amazing. It's becoming bandied around. So many, you know, it's like 
everyone, you know, on the business cards, a book you, you want to sell, oh, you add, and mindfulness, you know, mindfulness therapy and in prisons and education and cooking and I don't know what, it's all, you know, it's, it's like in, but a lot of people don't actually really know what it is. Sometimes even quite uh, dedicated students of practice haven't really thought about what are we talking about. Mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment, but it has a reflective quality where you know you're paying attention to the present moment. My, the way I like to distinguish it for people is I ask them to define what mindfulness is, and they'll say some variation of paying attention, being in the present moment, um, et cetera, et cetera. And my answer is yes, and a dog can do that. You know, a dog is really in the present moment, and it's paying attention, it's knowing what's happening, it's like all its senses are very alive. A dog can, can be mindful if that's your definition. But this slightly reflective quality is really important. This, this knowing, this wisdom aspect of mindfulness, that we know we're being mindful, and true mindfulness is a wholesome state that cultivates more wholesome states and leads to wisdom or insight. So mindfulness is not just a simple knowing what's happening. And of course, all scientific research is based on this kind of paying attention, paying attention to what you're interested in and gaining understanding of it. We are doing scientific research here, but the subject is ourselves, our own minds and bodies, and all our conditioning. We pay attention to the inner and the outer, and the more we pay attention, the more we see, the more we can understand. The more we understand, the more the natural freedom, the natural beautiful qualities of heart and mind can get developed. So in this inner and this outer way, inner attention, outer attention. Because, and, and to do this is going against the stream. The stream of society, especially at the moment, is to be lost. You know, you could almost say to be confused. I was in the airport a while ago, I think it was the Albuquerque airport. You know, lots of people, you sort of, again, like the salmon, you're in your stream, you're all walk. And most people nego- negotiate that, you find your way around. And I looked up ahead and there was this guy charging along, you know, towing his case, one-handed texting, totally oblivious, just barreling through, and he was almost on top of me. Luckily, I saw him and stepped out of the way. Otherwise, you know, and it must happen all the time. You know, you hear stories of people falling down the stairs and stepping in front of cars and, of course, bumping into each other because we're lost. We're not here in this body, in this moment. We're in our, on our phones, in our email, reading on the Internet, just lost in video games or whatever. Again, on another trip on a plane, I saw this really interesting documentary on attention. And, you know, it's amazing. You probably know there's all this research going on at the moment of the power of mindfulness and attention. It's great. You know, they did this whole documentary and they didn't mention mindfulness or meditation, but everything they were talking about, like the Buddha talked about that 2,600 years ago. Yes, pay attention. It's powerful. But it was really um, interesting to see what they were talking about. What they said is not news to you. They said, when we're not present, what's running the show? It's our unconscious, right? It's all of our subliminal urges and desires and habits and conditioning, um, our agendas. I always think of this kind of like Gollum, you know, in Lord of the Rings. Oh, my precious, how do I get what I want? You know, all the strategies and the the planning and the, the hiding and the running and the grasping. This, this is, the, if you really honestly look at, you know, what goes on in there, and that's what's running the show, a lot of that, because we're not present. We don't know what's happening, so we're just running on automatic pilot. So the purpose of meditation is to make the unconscious conscious, and not in some sort of deep psychological sense, but just so we start to track our motivations, our intentions, to see the impact of our perceptions so we can actually know what we're feeling, why we're responding in a certain way, what's happening for us, and how we're impacting others. So we have that awareness that's inner and outer. So we look deeply within to cultivate this quality of attention I always remember when I first saw people snorkeling. I grew up in a place 
where we went swimming a lot, but the water was cold and rough and kind of murky, and I didn't can't imagine there was much to see. And I saw people snorkeling. And I'm like, what are they looking at? There's water and there's sand. You know, what, what could be there? And then someone gave me a mask, a little funky mask, and I put it on, and it's like, wow, there's this whole world there that I didn't know existed. Meditation is like that. Your, your mask is closing your eyes and turning within, and this whole world can open up. And as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is everything, is the world, and everything you need to come to awakening. And again, these researchers say that what we can actually pay attention to is the size of your thumbnail on an outstretched hand compared to, you know, all this. It's pretty small. The rest we make up through interpolation, through projection, through our perceptions. The mind creates what it expects to see. And they they actually test this. Um, using magicians, you know, like in Las Vegas where they do these sleight-of-hand things. I mean, they're quite amazing. I've never seen one live. I've just seen them on film. But, you know, they take people's watches from their wrists and their glasses from their heads and do all kinds of things. And people don't notice if you distract them. You, at the end of this retreat, are going to be impervious to that. So maybe you should set out for Las Vegas and there's a new livelihood there is to beat those guys at their game. Because there is this training where we really start to see what's actually happening, not what we want to have happen or our projection or our, you know, uh, sense of what should be happening for someone else or for us. What's truly here? What's truly happening? So we're training to see clearly. And when we do this training, we're looking at our minds and our hearts. And it can often be kind of humbling. You know, when you really start to look at that chatter, that narrative in the mind, it's like, my God, doesn't have any shame and does it ever stop? Just commenting and judging and fetching and evaluating. It's endless. But we need, if we start paying attention to it, we can start developing a wiser relationship to that. Because the mind that le- is left unchecked, the untrained mind, as the Buddha would say, the wandering mind, again, research. The Buddha said it 2,600 years ago, but now we know it's true because scientists tell us. Researchers, researchers say the wandering mind is an unhappy mind. You know, we kind of think, oh, daydreams, fantasies, you know, just sort of lolling around. That's what we do to fill in time, makes us feel good. But they actually test, they check with uh, people saying, how, how are you feeling when this is happening? They're actually not very happy. So being more present is the way to real happiness. The Buddha taught us that this mindfulness of mind and body is a direct way out of the suffering, whether it's the sort of very refined suffering of a little bit of dissatisfaction or the the largest, deepest forms of grief, despair. This presence is such an important key because happiness is only to be found here and now. It's not found, certainly not found yesterday. You could have been happy yesterday. Does it help today? I mean, maybe a little bit. You can reflect on it, but, you know, it's really here. Thinking about what's for lunch tomorrow, it's not making you happy now, it's just making you hungry. Um, so it's here and now. And so we start to develop or cultivate this radical shift in how we relate to experience. Instead of this push and pull of past and future, we're more interested in what's happening here and we start to shift how we relate to experience. And a big part of this shift is the shift from obsession with the object, whether it's the breath or lasagna or I don't know, whatever it is you might want, you know, your team to win the Super Bowl or whatever it might be, to the awareness that's knowing that object, the quality of that awareness. Is it liking or disliking? 
Is it pushing away or holding on? As we start to refine our attention in that way, we can radically shift this capacity for happiness because it's not then so dependent on the object. We have this clarity of mind that brings us into harmony with the way things are and happiness is more available. The shift has, starts to happen when we start to prefer the present to past and future and stillness to distraction. It's a radical shift. As Joseph Goldstein said, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've trained ourselves to be distracted. You know, all of the multitasking that we think we do, which is apparently an illusion. You can't really multitask. You can just do a number of things sequentially quite badly, but we think we're, you know, being productive. Um, So all of this distraction of the internet and emails and instant messaging and, you know, twittering and all of this kind of stuff, we've programmed ourselves to be distracted. We have to shift that preference and really prefer simplicity, stillness, silence. It's a radical shift, and I'm not expecting you make that in one day. You know, it's, it's slow, because these patterns are deep, these habits are deep. But the more that, you know, like the salmon homing in, like what drew you here, was a sense of the power of that, the freedom that's possible as we deepen in that silence and stillness and simplicity. So we need to keep refining and referring to that. So our main technique here is mindfulness. Whatever you choose as your object, whether you keep it very simple around the breath and the body, or you're more open to all of the six sense doors and we'll talk about that progression or that, that, those um, different lenses as the days go by. But the core of it is this moment-to-moment attention, this gentle, continuous presence. This is the heart of our practice, this continuity, paired with right attitude, meaning being aware of when we're holding on to things, pushing away things, when we're not present, when we're deluded. This is the field we play in. This is a field, I should say, we swim in, in this retreat, all around these areas of paying attention and keeping the mind in a balanced, kind place. And of course we lose the thread. We lose it again and again, just as James was saying this morning, a hundred times, a thousand times. But there's a thousand opportunities to become mindful again. And as James said, as we, how we do that is so important to actually be grateful that we've come back, to be pleased that there's a sense of presence now when there wasn't a moment ago. We don't beat ourselves up for that. And we do this practice on all of these different levels. So the personal, the very individual, the closing of the eyes, and the turning attention within into this whole inner world, this whole inner landscape. It's very personal. It's about our, often about our conditioning and our sense of ourselves and you know, the felt sense of the body. But there's also a very impersonal way. We see it's just this way with everyone. Your body, my body, they're just bodies that have this nature. You know, we'll talk about the three characteristics, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self. So we see on the personal and the impersonal, and we see on the individual and the collective level. Again, even though it's a solitary practice, we can't do it alone. Imagine if you showed up for this retreat, and we were all here, but there was just one of you, 
And they said, we said, well, we'll do the retreat every, we'll talk every night, and we'll just talk to you, and we'll take turns, we'll see you one day after the other, and you'll sit and walk on your own. I mean, maybe you'd like it, but it'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? You know, you'd be sort of wandering around, and we'd be looking, where's our yogi? You know, where's the one person we had come to the retreat? But you come here, and you're with 80 or 90 other people. Don't you feel held in something? You know, that all of, everyone here, as unique an individual as we all are, sharing this aspiration. And you see people, you know, we always talk about, you see them walking again, it's like the salmon. You see them all walking to the hall, oh, that's where I should go. You see someone being very careful in their walking meditation and you get inspired to, to do that. So we can't do it alone. So we look on the very minute level of the refined awareness of sensations of the body and the movement of the mind. We see on this big universal scale that we're not separate, that we're not as individual as we are. There's also, that we're more alike than we're different. We see on the personal, our story, you know, each one of us has our history and our conditioning and our family uh, constellation. <coughs> Um, and the impersonal, I said, the three characteristics, and the sort of the nature, you know, that we're part of nature also. We walk outside and the, the trees and the deer and the, and the life of the, of the nature really supports us and holds us. So we're all, all of these have truths that we can learn from. All of them are useful. It's kind of like, you know, if you take a drop of water from a river, and look at a microscope, it's full of these amazing little beings, you know, to whenever 200 years ago, 300 years ago, when the, before they discovered microscopes, didn't know they existed. Now we know there's all of these little beings. But it, the fact that they're there doesn't take away from the power and the majesty of the flowing river. Both are true. So it's the same with our own inner journey, which is to more wakefulness and less suffering on all these levels. They all have to be included. It isn't just about, you know, how do I get to be as free and as happy as I can be and, you know, out of my way, everyone else. I'm on my journey. It's why we talk about the bodhisattva vows in so many Buddhist traditions. They value this sense of practicing and dedicating our practice for the well-being of all beings. This aspiration to, to serve and to become enlightened so we can actually benefit other beings. This compassion that builds as we, as we become more connected and not so separate. It's a natural expression of the heart. So we wake up out of this delusion of separateness that we can exist in for so long or go in and out of. Sometimes we're really aware of the connectedness and then other times we get lost in the delusion of separateness. And this delusion can wor- work on all kinds of levels. It can be sort of very active, almost will. You know, I don't want to see, get that away from me, it's too painful. Or it can be passive. We don't, we're not even aware that we have those beliefs or that delusion. It can work on an individual level. Our family structures can have delusion at their heart of them. There's societal delusion, cultural delusion, all these different levels. You know, we can say, oh, that's not my problem. That's that community's problem. Oh, those people over there, or that's that individual's issue. You know, they should take care of that or fix that. It doesn't affect me. But we're all impacted by the suffering of the world, by the injustice in the world, by the cruelty, by the hatred, the prejudice. We are all affected just as we were affected by Selma all those years ago, by Ferguson recently, we're affected. We're affected by the movement towards marriage equality and this amazing shift that's happening that just seems to be tumbling through all the states that people can now marry who they love. We're affected by that. We don't do this uh, uh, separate. And so as a community here at Spirit Rock, we want to wake up to the delusion of separateness. We want to be as welcoming and accessible to anyone who wants to come here to practice. You know, and that's always been our aspiration and our idea. Um, but we didn't really know what we didn't know about how 
isolated spirit rock, separate spirit rock can seem for many people that it doesn't seem accessible for all kinds of reasons. So we really had to practice opening our hearts, opening our minds, challenging ourselves. What does it really mean to be inclusive and welcoming of, of people of all kinds of backgrounds and races and abilities and class and gender and sexuality? What does it really take for us as a community to do that? So we, 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 we are looking in those ways of how do we do that as a community, the staff and the teachers and the board, because we want the Dharma to be accessible. We value it so much. We really want that to be um, possible for people. But we can often be blind to ways you know, that we don't realize that we're creating barriers, the sort of systemic kinds of delusion or challenges that we can put up, we're not even aware of. So we're trying to educate ourselves and be more conscious in these areas because this kind of delusion can create huge suffering. And a big part of the delusion is we're just not even aware that it's happening. You know, we, we have the, oh, we're nice, friendly people, Everyone should come, you know. We're, we're welcoming, we're kind, you know, and we are, we're good people, but we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know things that we might do that might be impactful to other people unless we wake up, unless we educate ourselves. So we're really doing that. I'm actually part of a small group of teachers that meet regularly just to talk about ways we, we can wake up, we can learn, we can grow, reading history, reading uh, books that are relevant to this area, sharing amongst ourselves, so that we can be as welcoming as possible, as inclusive as possible. As Maya Angelou says, prejudice is a burden that confuses the past threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible. We want the present to be accessible. We want our minds and hearts to be open and awake and to share that with all who wish to participate. So we need to challenge ourselves at times to, to wake up in areas that we perhaps don't know we were deluded It's one of the things, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you start to look. It's like the snorkeling imagery. So we, our challenge is, what do we need to wake up to on all these different levels? Our individual level, the personal level, the impersonal, the societal, the collective. We can't really wake up unless unless there's this really broad-based possibility of waking up. And this kind of change often involves discomfort. It's like getting out of our comfort zone. You know, many, many of us may come into Spirit Rock, even if you're new here, and feel right at home. You know, you're used to this kind of place, the way things work, just feel comfortable. And just to acknowledge that for other people it may not be that way. And that for all of us at some time or other, we'll feel, I think Brian talked about this, perhaps separate from the others, for whatever reason. Just to keep our hearts open to that. You know, we practice in silence, as we talked about this afternoon, but there's an expression of the heart of inclusivity and welcoming that we can all participate in that's very healing and rewarding. Because really there's almost an imperative that we have to do this, that we need to wake up all of us on all these levels. We can't have a true deep commitment to awakening if we're fostering senses of separation, of privilege, of isolation on any of these levels, individual or community. And we, as I keep saying, we we often don't even know the delusion is present and we don't know what we're waking up to. That's the very definition of enlightenment. It's a new experience. If we knew what it was, we'd all just go home if we'd had it before. But there's this mystery to it that's, that's powerful and fresh. And we can kind of make it, I don't know, out there and es- esoteric and something beyond. I think it's also more simple than that. 
I saw this little saying on a friend's refrigerator just the other night. I really liked it. Same old slippers, same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. Same old slippers, same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. Just that sense in the mundaneness of our lives, of your little room here at Spirit Rock, of the bowl of oatmeal in the morning, there's also the possibility of a glimpse of paradise, we would say, of freedom to be found in the direct contacting of that experience and in the openness of the heart and mind that's experiencing it. So, again, as I've said, we we do bring our lives with us, all of our fears and our hopes, our joys and our sorrows, our grief and our loss and our anger, this will come up for us. This is the personal, the conditioned, you know, the review of life, whether it's recent or long-distance past. And the world is with us, too. You know, all of those images of violence and, and uh, um, protest that we've all seen recently, hardship. And as we open to that, whether it's the individual suffering or the collective suffering, it seems like our suffering can increase. It's like, oh man, this too, it's so much, so much. If I take on that, and I think it's true, it does increase, but our heart strengthens to hold it or open to it, and in doing it, it reduces what I think, even though it's a more subtle form of suffering, it's a deeper form of suffering, that of denial or separation. So all of this is possible here on this retreat, this lessening of the sense of separation between us and them, inner and outer, you know, me and you, and, and, and the, the protectiveness that we can feel, uh, the, the um, imbalance in that, and actually on, be on this journey that's one of integration, That's one of opening and understanding of the inner and the outer. I've always loved this poem uh, when I first heard it by Izumi Shikibu, a Japanese woman in the 10th century. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. There's such acceptance in that. And we could almost add as a possibility, I knew the world completely, no part left out. And feel that possibility of the heart that's open and connected and compassionate that can hold that. So this is the journey that we're on together. Individual, collective, the Sangha, you know, all of you as individuals, each one of us here will be a teacher for the other. Each one of us here will be a support for the other. Each one of us here will be a challenge for the other. That happens too. But this is the journey that we're on, and we're on it, in it, together. So look around. You know, this is your family. This is your home for this, these weeks of practice. And, you know, Hopefully, perhaps a more healthy family than your family of origin, don't know, but, uh, you know, it'll have its challenges and it will support you. We're all in this together. So really appreciate you being here and your commitment to practice, to be here for this time and look forward to getting to know you as the days go by finish with a quote from James Baldwin. There is never time in the future in which we will work out our salvation. The challenge is in the moment. The time is always now. So now is where we come alive, where we find happiness, where we find freedom. So at the end of talks, we just like to take a moment to let the words settle. You don't need to change your posture, but if you want to, you can. We just sit in silence for a moment or two.
So thank you for your attention. Now it's time for walking meditation. And at 9 o'clock, we'll have um, the last sitting of the day with the evening chanting, which will uh, Greg will come and start teaching the metta sutta chant that's on the back of your sheet. It's a beautiful chant. And he'll just introduce it tonight and do a shorter sitting. So it says till 9.40. It will not go to 9.40. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.